I'm Olympic and world champion diver, Laura Wilkinson, and this is the Pursuit of Gold podcast. Each week, we are unlocking the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual tools that help athletes reach their biggest goals in sports. Now imagine with me, you're in your sophomore year of college. You're at the university to be at in your sport. And now you're at the national championship game and you and your team are ready and primed to take that title. Just two and a half minutes into the game, you find yourself in the middle of a super important play. You're doing your job, you're digging deep, and you are fighting hard because this is what you have been working so long and hard for. You close your eyes and brace for impact, and there's a snap, and your whole life changes forever. Robert Paler was paralyzed in that rugby play, and his life took a turn he would have never imagined. In today's episode, Robert tells us all about that fateful moment when he became a quadriplegic. But friends, this is not the end of his story. It's the beginning of an entirely new one. He tells us about the terrifying beginning of this new journey, the mindset he developed that would change and define his character and abilities, the team that surrounded and supported him, and why, if he could, he would not go back and change what happened to him. This episode with Robert is sure to give you all the feels and inspire you to push harder and go further than you ever have before. But before we jump into that episode, I want to read you a five-star review we received on Apple iTunes from Muppet Car. It's titled Inspiring and Uplifting. It reads, Thank you, Laura, for a vulnerable look into a life of champions. Thoughts, discussions, and inspiration derive from areas I never expected. I never considered what the impact must feel like after the games have ended, after all the training has commenced. The drive, the passion, and sacrifices, this is a series that not only provides inspiration for my daily life, but puts into even greater perspective the journey and amazing accomplishment Olympians have. Thank you for sharing. Muppet Car, thank you for that awesome review. We created the Pursuit of Gold podcast to help athletes, but sports is often a great analogy for life. So I'm really not surprised that all the stories, lessons, and inspiration from our guests are encouraging people outside of the athletic realm as well. If you've not already, please subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and review. This is truly the best way that you can support what we're doing here on the Pursuit of Gold podcast week after week. And who knows, maybe I'll read yours in the next episode. All right. I believe that there is gold in your future. So let's dive on into this episode with Robert Paler. All right, Robert Paler, I have been looking forward to this conversation for a while now. Welcome to the Pursuit of Gold podcast. I am so excited that you're here. Laura, thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure. Well, I love to warm up and kind of get our conversation rolling um, by finding out how our guests kind of got into their sport. So tell us how rugby became your thing. Yeah, well, it's kind of interesting because, you know, over here in America, rugby is definitely not mainstream. And right. I didn't even know what rugby was till I got to high school. You know, I was thinking, oh, is that the game with the sticks? Or, you know, <laughs> I just really, really didn't um, understand the sport at all. And when I went to high school, it's at Jesuit High School in the Sacramento area which is number one or number two in the nation every single year. Very successful program over in Sacramento in America. And I was, you know, I was playing football and I, I loved contact. Like I just enjoyed the physical aspect of that game. I took that, you know, into the other sports that I played too. And it was around my sophomore year that I was, I was looking for another sport to play. And a lot of my buddies were playing rugby and they said, you know, Hey Rob, you know, go try it out. We think you'd be pretty good at this. You know, we, as a team are very good. Number one in the nation, hot off a national championship, come out and give it a shot. So, you know, I kind of took a leap of faith. I was always playing basketball at the time. So I stopped playing basketball and I started playing rugby and I just took to it and I <laughs> loved it. It's, you know, 80 minutes of nonstop continuous play. You know, there's no pads holding you back, you know, it's physical, <laughs> right. but, but there's a sense of camaraderie with the sport. And especially in America, given that it is kind of, uh, its own niche sport, when you see other people who play rugby, like you already just like have that connection. It's such a strong bond of rugby players here in America. So I really enjoyed the sport and eventually got my shoulder tapped to go over and play at UC Berkeley, California, which is the most successful collegiate rugby program in America historically. So things are really working out for me, but that's how I found the sport. Oh, that's so crazy. So you only played it for like two, maybe three years in high school. And then you got, did you get a scholarship? 
so yeah, I, since I started my sophomore year and you know, I competed throughout high school, so that was three years under my belt to go over, you know, play at a division one varsity program like Cal. And that's kind of common for rugby, actually, you know, given that it is sort of this niche sport in America and we don't have um, scholarships over at Cal, um, just don't have the you know funding to be able to give out those scholarships and whatnot. But a little bit of assistance getting into the number one public university in the world certainly didn't hurt. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Well, I mean, so what what was it like being at Cal? I mean, that had to just kind of be the dream, right? Like you're you're doing the sport that you love. You're doing it at the best place in this in the country to do it. I mean, what was that like? It was an absolute dream. I knew that going to play rugby at Cal was going to be tough. At the time, I think we had won 30 national championships. Wow. The national tournament had only been in existence for about 45 years. Um, so, you know, <laughs> wow. our win record for this program is just astronomical. I think the only team that has more wins than that in terms of like a national scale is like the Harlem Globetrotters. And, you know, <laughs> their games are rigged. So, you know, we were, we were doing pretty well. Um, and I knew it was going to be tough. You know, I was, you know, as MVP on the number two team in the nation coming out of high school, a very, very successful player going in to play a cow. And I knew I was going to, you know, I was kind of this big fish, small pond. And then, you know, my like relative fish size definitely went down into this larger pond of, of cow rugby. Everybody goes there. They were the best on their team. They were the captain. They were the MVP. We're all competing for a spot. But I knew that by going there, I was going to be the best player that I could be. I could have gone to another program and I might've got more playing time right of, right away, you know, more of a uh, authoritative position, like a, you know, team captain or something like that very quickly, but had to go for this opportunity at Cal because I knew I was going to be the best player I could be. And by my sophomore year, I had earned a starting spot, a regular starter on the number one team in the nation things were really going my way. I worked hard for it. I was putting in the extra hours. I focused on it all the time, you know, getting up on the field, getting in the weight room, putting in that work and it was paying off. So, you know, starting my sophomore year, that wasn't really an easy or common thing to do to happen, but it was happening. So like I said, living the dream. <laughs> well, you are living the dream. Um, I mean, you're an honor student too, right? I think you're doing really well in school as well. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't quite make honors, but I was. Okay. I was doing pretty well in school. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got this picture. You're starting. You're you're playing on this amazing team. It does feel like you're living the dream. But then, walk us through what happened. Yes. So the day was May 6, two thousand seventeen, and I didn't know it then, but I will forever remember this day better than any day of my life. It was the day of the collegiate rugby national championship. Like I said, I'd worked my way up to a starting role as a sophomore and was getting ready to compete for this title. You know, it was kind of funny. Like I'm, you know, a part of this really history program at Jesuit high school and my junior and senior year, we came in second. My junior year, we lost by one point <laughs> and my senior year, we lost by 10 points, which rugby scoring is very similar to football scoring. So, you know, tight margin for both of those games. And, uh, you know, my freshman year, I wasn't starting, but, you know, I was supporting the team in every way, that, every way that I could on the practice squad and the reserve team. But, you know, my sophomore year, it was it was really a moment for me. It was a day of legacy to where I could point to a banner on the wall for the rest of my life and bring my family over there to rugby games in the future and say, you know, I was a part of that. I did that because when you're a national champion, you're not just a national champion for the day. You're a national champion for life. I wanted this so badly. It's it was really the pinnacle of my sports career to that point. Now, it was very early on in this game after we kick off the ball that the other team commits a penalty. So we kick it into touch. And for those who don't know rugby, that's it's kind of like an inbounds situation. We we're about seven meters out. It was an obvious mauling situation. Now, a maul is when the bigger guys, we group together in the single unit and we push in a single unit to advance the ball. And I'm a big guy. Like this is my element. I'm six foot five, about 240 pounds, big for a rugby player out there. I move people that don't want to be moved. I mean, that is my <laughs> That's purpose. Your job, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I knew like this was going to be a situation, you know, next day when we watch film, you know, I'll get a pat on the back. Nice job, Paylor, driving in that mall <laughs> to score the first try of the championship. But it was as I was doing this that these players started making illegal moves and the referee wasn't calling anything. So a player comes in from the side, which is illegal. You're not supposed to do that. Um, but the ref isn't calling it. He binds his arm around my neck, pinning me in a headlock with my chin to my chest. Now, 
Normally in rugby, this would be an automatic yellow or red card, a suspension from the game, but still the referee's not, not calling it. So I remember I'm fighting this thing, you know, I got a job to do, you know, this guy's committing penalties, but I can't just like stand up and, you know, throw my arms and look at the ref saying, what's going on here? No, I got to drive in this mall. So I continue to do this. Another player comes in and he chops me down by my legs and I get illegally rode all the way down to the ground until I close my eyes. I grip my teeth and then snap. Mm. My face slams against my chest. I feel this crunch in my neck and I immediately can't feel or move anything below my neck. Oh my goodness. I'm lying there screaming as loud as I can. You can see the whites of my teeth on this game film as I'm screaming, looking at my numb and limp body. I'm doing everything I can to get up, but I'm moving nothing. And the trainers and doctors, they run over to me trying to assess the situation, you know, and keep in mind, here's how crazy this was. They didn't even stop play when I was there on the ground. So I'm laying there. Did they not see you? Oh, I'm not. I'm sure they saw me. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's kind of an interesting thing for rugby. So if a player gets injured, but they're very far off from where the play is actually happening and it's not too severe of an injury, then they'll allow play to continue. The trainers will run out there and, you know, start doing their assessments and whatnot, but they'll just continue playing. Now, in a situation like mine, where I practically look like a corpse here on this field, um, very critically injured play should have been stopped, but it wasn't. And my thoughts were running wild. I was terrified. I was scared. It was like a nightmare and I couldn't even wake up. I mean, you could have pinched me in that moment and I wouldn't have felt it. I started thinking about all my goals and you know, all my dreams, they all feel in jeopardy. I'm thinking, am I going to be able, be able to play rugby again? Am I going to be able to go to school? see my friends, you know, meet a girl, get married, start a family and have a good career. All those things in life that I just expected to happen. Now they're all in jeopardy. But more importantly, I'm thinking, am I going to be able to feed myself again? Walk? In this moment, my face is in the dirt. I can barely even breathe. Now I'm transported over to a local hospital in Santa Clara where we take some medical imaging. My doctor comes back and he delivers the news. He says, Robert, what happened to you is bad, really bad. And the reality is you will never walk again. You will never move your hands. We're going to do our best. You can do something like pick up a piece of pizza and bring it to your face. If you can do something like that, then you beat the odds. You made it. And he didn't stop there. He also recommends surgery to me. He says it's my best chance at stability in my spine. And there's a big but it's a potentially life-threatening surgery. Now, at the time, my nervous system was so compromised. And in addition, they would be doing the surgery through the front of my neck. A lot of important real estate right there. If something's a little bit off, something gets snipped, that shouldn't get snipped. Things get bad really, really quick. So he said I had about 30 minutes to make this decision if I wanted to go into the surgery or not. So I get on the phone and I call my religious advisor. My faith is very important to me. Um, you know, I went to Catholic school, K through 12. I was in my darkest hour and I needed God. So I reached out to my religious advisor to actually bring a priest over to give me the sacrament of anointing of the sick. That way that if I died, I would have a better chance of going to heaven and that God would also be with me throughout this recovery. Wow. And he's like, yes, I'll reach out. I'll get a local priest to come over to you to give you this sacrament. But I want to leave you with this. He gave me this piece of advice and uh, it's carried me ever since. He said, Robert, what happened to you is bad. And throughout this journey, there's going to be a lot of things that you just can't control. But the one thing you have control over is your mindset, your positivity, your ambition, your willingness to wake up every single day and fight is up to you. No circumstance can take that away from you. As long as you have blood in your veins, breath in your lungs, and a clear head on your shoulders, you can control your mindset. Now, in that moment, I didn't have a lot. I didn't have the odds on my side. I didn't have these promising signals coming out of my body. I didn't have a doctor tell me that everything was going to be okay, but I had my faith and I had a goal and I had my mindset and I made a decision in that moment. I think it's so important that we always remember in every moment, we have the power to make a choice. And that choice was I was going to give everything I had to get absolutely everything I can get. So when the doctor came back, I said, let's go into the surgery. I said my prayers. I said goodbye to my family. I got rolled into the operating room. And that concluded May 6th of 2017. 
Well, what, let me, well, I mean, this is a lot. <laughs> this is a quite bit. a day. Yeah. Yeah. Quite a day. I, I mean, I want to go back to when you were lying on the grass, your face in the dirt and all that stuff is going through your mind. I mean, was it really happening that fast? All of those things, or were you still kind of processing as this real, you know, at what moment, I guess, did it really kind of start to dawn on you that like, whoa, something really, really bad. I mean, obviously really bad right away, but like, like, Long term, I mean, are you already realizing that immediately? Yeah, it was instantaneous. Um, yeah, I had broken plenty of bones before, you know, playing football and rugby. Gosh, I broke my wrist multiple times, you know, my nose and, um, you know, my hands, like all these things. I knew what it felt like to break a bone. And when I felt it in my neck, I first, of course, n- knew that I broke my neck, um, which has a lot of negative connections to it, right? And I thought about the story of Eric Legrand. I don't know if you've ever heard of Eric Legrand before. He's a Rutgers football player, and he was on special teams at the time, went down in a kickoff and collided with his head on another player. And you see his body go stiff and he broke his neck. And, you know, I would see the updates like years later. And, um, you know, he's he's got a heart of gold and, you know, his mind is as rock solid as anything that I've ever seen. But, you know, he's dealing with a lot physically. And it was a really big deal for him to be able to breathe on his own. And, you know, here, I think that's an awesome accomplishment for Eric, but I don't want that to be my reality where I'm just excited to be able to breathe on my own in my future. You know, I wanted so much more out of my life than just focusing on those small little gains like that. So I knew instantaneously what had happened to me and the high, high likelihood that my future would be forever changed. I mean, I envisioned myself sitting, you know, out of, at a window in my house and my mom would spoon feed me for as long as she lived. And then one day, you know, she would pass away and then I'd have a caretaker, you know, spoon feeding me. And I just envisioned a very dark, sad possibility of my life, um, where I would just be sad and alone. And keep in mind, I'm 20 years old when this is going on. I got a lot of life ahead of me, but I knew it was terrible. And, you know, as things were going on. I could see my, my teammates, you know, my, my friends looking at me from the stands and in the sidelines. And I would just be mouthing like, this is bad. This is really bad. Well, when you had to make that decision at the hospital, I mean, the doctor's saying like, you got 30 minutes to make this life altering decision, which might help you or might end you. I mean, are you beside, I know you called your religious mentor in and, and had a priest come in, but did, were you talking to your parents too? Or were you just kind of like, this is what I have to do? I mean, how how did you look at that in that moment? Because I, I just think, gosh, it's such a short amount of time to make such a big decision. Yeah. I, the, the thing with that time constraint was when you break your neck, you have this eight hour window to go into surgery. Research has shown that if you have your surgery within those eight hours, your your recovery chances increase greatly. And if you wait after those eight hours, your recovery chances decrease significantly. So that, you know, this was what I was told before this surgery and how important it was for me to make this decision quickly so we could go into this surgery. And, you know, there's this principle, this vocabulary that we used to talk about at Cal Rugby. We had a glossary of terms so that we could have common understandings for words. You know, you can bring out a word like leadership and ask people what leadership means to them. And you'll get, you know, 50 different people and 50 different definitions. That doesn't mean it's wrong. It's just, there's not a collective understanding. And we had a definition for mental toughness, which was the ability to focus on the next most important thing. Now in rugby, that meant when the ball hits your hands and you drop it and, or you commit a penalty or you get run over, you can really hold on to that moment. You know, you pound your fist into the turf and when the play comes your way next time, you're still thinking about that moment. You're not focusing on what you need to do right now. The mentally tough person is able to put that moment in the past, focus on what they need to do in that moment, the next most important thing. And that's what I had to do in this recovery. Something had happened to me, something tragic and catastrophic had just happened to me, but I had to access this extreme level of mental toughness. I had to be able to focus on the next most important thing. So to make these logical decisions and not let emotions get in the way with it, you know, I did have conversations with my parents. Absolutely. They were there with me the whole time. I had my brother hold the phone in front of my face and I called my closest friends and I said, you know, I broke my neck. My doctor's telling me that I'm probably not going to move anything ever again. And he's recommending this surgery to me. It's potentially life-threatening. And I just want to let you know that I love you. I might not see you ever again, 
but I think I'm going to go into this, you know, tears coming down my face, tears coming down their face. And my brother, as he holds his phone in front of me, it was all very emotional, but I knew that I couldn't live with the regret of not going into this surgery that, you know, if, if I would look back, you know, after years from this moment and, you know, not have had the recovery that I wanted and think, you know, man, what if I went into that surgery, what would have happened? I wouldn't be able to live with that. So that kind of confirmed that decision for me is I was just going to do and give everything I could to optimize my recovery. Gosh, I love that. And I I feel like in in a lot of ways that your time in sports and in rugby really kind of prepared you for that moment mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And I love that you you just automatically went there. Like you knew how to get to that place when you needed to be there, even though it was so, so incredibly hard. I, I mean, and I, I read during your duration in the hospital that like, I think it was like the first month and at, right after the surgery, like that, it was just terrifying when you had pneumonia. Like t- take us through those first few days, like post-surgery, what happened? Yeah. So that's when the real fight began. Um, you know, I opened my eyes pretty groggily after this surgery and, uh, the surgery went very well. The surgeon did an incredible job with the fusion on my spine. Uh, but that's when the real fight began. I was spiking fevers that night up to 105 degrees, you know, which is, which is really pushing into a dangerous zone. And I had my, you know, nurses pouring ice water over me that entire night. And, you know, I was just feeling beat up and it was after a day or two that i contracted full-on pneumonia Uh and it was believed that during the surgery a bug was on the ventilator that went down my throat into my lungs to keep me breathing throughout this surgery but the problem was i couldn't cough yeah my diaphragm was mostly paralyzed my cough was like oh my goodness i mean that's everything i had was just like a soft breath so i would sit there and i would you know i would choke on this mucus. And, you know, you'd look over at my oxygen levels and they just drop and drop and drop. And, you know, we get a nurse in there or, you know, if a family member or friend was there with me and they just start slamming down on my chest as I'm giving everything that I have to work this stuff out of my lungs. I maybe slept two hours a day during that whole period in between the breathing treatments every three hours. I had to get rolled over in my bed every two hours because you get skin sores if you spend too much time in one position and checking my vitals and, you know, getting medications and, you know, between the eyes getting dumped on my body. I mean, it was like death was sitting with me in that hospital room waiting for me to quit. And it was that real conscious decision, that mental toughness, right? No matter how tired I was, I had to focus on the next most important thing. When the respiratory therapist comes in and says, hey, we got to start pumping on these lungs again, I have to say yes. And when he's saying, you know, hey, are you done? And I feel a little bit of that phlegm still sitting in my lungs. I'm thinking, no, I need to keep fighting for this. If I don't do this, I might die. I might not live another day. It was very dire, but I had my family by my side. I had my friends by my side. I had so many people supporting me from all across the globe that when I didn't believe in myself, they believed in me. And that's what kept me going forward. And why couldn't carry myself? They carried me. And that's what kept me pushing forward. So that was just a very crazy, wild first month, but I made it out of the clear. Oh, so that, that, oh wow, that lasted an entire month. I can't even imagine because I'm sure every, every day probably felt like a month in itself. So that, I mean, it would be like the longest month of your life. Uh, yeah. Well, from there, you moved on to a rehab hospital, but like halfway across the country. How, how did you choose where you were going to go? Because you were there for a very long time, right? Yeah, I was. Um, so it was once I was kind of working my way out of this medical critical stage, that I started thinking about where I wanted to do my rehabilitation. And it was a public hospital where I was staying. And they allowed for about three hours of therapy a day. And, you know, with my sports background, I'm used to giving everything I got, you know? <laughs> run until I puke. And if I, if I had like my workout buddy, you know, I'd always work out with. And if we were not sore, like the next day after a workout, I mean, we were just like livid, you know, we like totally failed. <laughs> um, I just like, I had that mindset. I wanted to give everything I had and I, I could give a lot. I was used to putting my mind into that dark closet and, um, I would just wasn't getting out of this hospital. So we received a lot of messages from people who had witnessed my story, especially a lot of rugby people, people in the Bay Area, Sacramento, where I'm from. And 
it was just told over and over again, get to Craig Hospital, get out to Denver, Colorado. You need to go to this hospital. Uh, they're number one, number two spinal cord rehabilitation facility in the United States. So it was, you know, it was a lot of my dad working on with insurance to get me out there. You know, I needed a medical transport. It's not like I could just hop on a Southwest air flight, you know, and, and work my way out there. I wasn't doing well in the stage. I was still kind of on the tail end of pneumonia. And oh, I forgot to mention another thing. I couldn't even swallow anything. I mean, I, I couldn't eat or drink for that entire month. I got fed by a tube that went down my nose and into my stomach. And I lost 60 pounds in oh, that first month. Was that because of the paralysis or was that related to the pneumonia? It was likely the swelling that was in my neck okay. because of the injury and possibly some of the pneumonia. I don't I don't remember what that flap is called that covers your lung when you swallow. Um but it was getting it was getting kind of stuck against this swelling. So if I would, you know, if I was eating yogurt or drinking water, it would just go straight into my lung and I wasn't able to cough it out, which only made my pneumonia worse. So it took three days to get that tube down my nose. It was just unbelievable. You know, but I was kind of making out of the clear and found this place and thought, I need to go to this hospital and I make it. And my first conversation with my doctors, their outlook is just so different. They look at me and they see potential, not some broken body. And they said, Robert, what? Well, yes, what happened to you is absolutely terrible, but we don't know where your recovery is going from here. I mean, you could walk out of these doors one day and you could very well not. But the one thing we do know is we are going to give you everything that modern science and medicine has to offer. Wow. So, you know, these people, they gave me a chance. You know, they gave me that hope that I needed um, because that, the first doctor, you know, who gave me this really horrible prognosis, he wasn't a bad guy, right? You know, he was actually trying to protect me. He was trying not to give me false hope. And something that I think is just as bad, if not worse than giving someone false hope is giving someone false hopelessness. You know, I, mean, I think if I would have listened to that guy, I think if I would have taken what he told me as truth, I certainly wouldn't be in the situation I am today. And I might not have even have survived at all. So when these doctors gave me just that good dose of realistic hope, I went for it. And I told them, I was like, I've worked me harder than you've ever worked anyone before. I didn't come <laughs> here to sleep. I didn't come here on vacation. I came here to walk out of these hospital doors. So it was eight to nine hours of really intense rehabilitation a day. I mean, I'm trying to get something that can't move to move that just so happens to be about 85% of my body. It's hard to explain just what that sensation is like. And I honestly think it's like, it's like moving your eyeball to the side of your head. Like there just is no connection. You're trying to just will something to happen. And it was over the course of this year that I went from no motion at all to where I could twitch my fingers and twitch my toes to where it was about a year later in this hospital, I was able to get up into a walker with assistance. And I walked out of those hospital doors. I did what doctors told me were impossible on day one. That had to feel so good. <laughs> so good. Yes, it was absolutely incredible. But you know, it was also, it was such like a day-to-day -day grind, like a day-to-day -day journey. It wasn't like, you know, I was working and then it was just like, boom, I would get like this shot of energy and improvement. I mean, day-to-day, -day, the gains I see are just unnoticeable. Um, you can't see them all. They're that small. And you know, a lot of days, I do worse than I did the day before, but you know, when that scope increases and to think how I went into that hospital on a stretcher and I left on my own two feet, uh, it's pretty remarkable. So how do you, I mean, this is, uh, this is so good. I mean, cause that's uh, such a good analogy for anyone anywhere in their life too, is that they can relate on that level of like, some days I don't feel like I'm improving at all, but if you can look back, like you said, of how it came in here, how, how we started, like you can see that big picture, but is that what you do on those hard days or what do you do on those days where you're like, I feel like I took two steps backwards. Like how, how do you put your, how, how do you get your mind back to where it needs to be on those days or, or is it just okay to have a bad day? You know, I, I think it's absolutely okay to have a bad day. And this is such a long game, you know, for what I do, I knew that it was going to be a long game. And I think we all have to have that kind of understanding that just putting in the work for a couple of weeks just isn't going to cut it or, or, you know, a couple of months or even a couple of years. Um, this really takes a long time to add up these gains. And the thing that kept me going when I was locked down in that hospital bed and when I had my bad days of rehab, I thought about my vision. 
I thought about what I wanted to see in my life, what I wanted my future to look like. Now, for me in my recovery, that was a very easy thing for me to visualize because these were all things that I already had at one point in my life. I walked very well for 20 years. I knew exactly what it looked like to have that. You know, I, I knew what it looked like to be independent and have all those things. My vision was ironclad. I knew exactly what I wanted, and I had this insatiable appetite to make it happen. So when I had a bad day, you know, I just think about me being able to stand up out of my wheelchair for the first time, thinking about how's that going to feel, thinking about walking out of those hospital doors. How's that going to feel? How's it going to feel when I can feed myself for the first time? How's it going to like taste when I can eat something, you know, for the first time after that first month, you know, all those things, it just, it built up this desire to achieve this desire to work. That when I had a bad day, you know, I had this future to look forward to, something that I wanted, but also understanding my current reality that I was in a tough situation and it was going to take a lot of work to dig out of that and those small steps along the way to make this vision happen. That fueled me, that kept me pushing when I had those rough days. Uh, I love, I love, I'm like scribbling notes over here. This is so good. <laughs> I, lo- I just, I love, I love how you just always bring it back. Like you, you can have these big visions, you can look forward, you can kind of drive yourself that way, but then you pull yourself back. Okay. Well, here I am now. And how do I get to that place? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I love how you keep pulling it back. I think that's so cool. What I had to ask you, cause I know you've talked about like, where, you know, one day you were just staring at your toe and you're like willing it to move, kind of like you were mentioning earlier, you're willing your body to move and like nothing's happening. I mean, when you finally did see your toe move, which I know you said you were like so excited, it was such a big deal. Like, did you feel it or was it just like you saw it and you knew it could happen? Like how has any feeling come back or where where does that, I, I guess, what what is going on with your body as you've been recovering um, over the last couple of years? Yeah. So I always had feeling in my body. Well, not always, but for the majority of, of my recovery, I had a feeling. I had like deep pressure sensation early on. So I have what's called an incomplete injury. There's like two really broad classifications of spinal cord injuries. That's complete and incomplete. Complete is that you have no motion or sensory function below your injury level. And incomplete is you have all or some of your motion or sensory function below your injury level. So for about two months, I had no motion below my injury level, but I did have that like deep pressure sensation. So like you could put a knife in my leg and it wouldn't hurt, but I'd be like, yeah, there's something there. <laughs> you know. Oh, gotcha. So it wasn't great, but I had this exercise that I did multiple times every single day where I would just try to move every single one of my muscles from my head to my toes. So I'd start with stuff that I could move. Like I could always move my upper traps. I could shrug my shoulders up and I do 20 reps of that, you know, one, two, three, and it's easy. And I'd keep working down to where I say, let's, I got to my hands. I'm trying to open up my hand and I'm gritting my teeth. I'm closing my eyes and doing everything I can to open this hand, sending that signal, visualizing in my mind, um, nothing's happening. But I continue to do that. And I work all the way down to those toes, you know, and I'm looking at them. I'm, you know, just like just really trying to will this, trying to reconnect my brain to my muscles. And it was on Father's Day that I was doing this exercise. And I was it was early in the morning. I think it was like a weekend day at that time. And I was looking at my toes, which by the way, were just nasty because I had, you know, fleet feet from playing, you know, rugby and football and all that stuff. Uh, but you know, look getting these things to move and I'm bearing down and I got just like a flicker out of like the right three toes, um, you know, pinky toe on in. And, you know, I'm like, I'm kind of in like disbelief here, you know, because I had prayed, I'd thought about this moment for so long, um, you know, wanting it to happen. But so many times, I mean, thousands of rejections throughout these reps, you know, do it again. And they go again. And I just had a grin going ear to ear. I was calling everybody and their mother into this hospital room, you know, to watch me just wiggle these nasty looking toes. Um, but you know, here, this was this huge moment for me. I think there's a lesson in that. And that's to appreciate every victory we have, no matter how small they are, because me being able to wiggle my toes, that wasn't going to change anything immediately for my recovery. It gave me a lot of hope. It was a very good sign, but when I ask most people to wiggle their toes, they're not going to get all giddy about it. You know? <laughs> um, but it was so important to like realize that tiny victory. I realized there's just so much that I had lost that I had taken for granted in my life. You know, my ability to 
play rugby, my ability to go on a long hike, my ability to just get up out of bed and put on my clothes by myself. I mean, all these things that at one time I never really gave a thought to, I started realizing these were some of the most important things in my life. So I think it's so important that we access that perspective to help us be more grateful people, to help us realize what we have before it's lost and appreciate those small victories we have. Definitely. Oh, I love that. I do have one random question within that, though. Is that, did you come up with that exercise on your own, like working your way through your muscles, or did the the doctors or the rehab specialists tell you about that? You know, at first I started it just on my own, and then later it was confirmed to me by a doctor. He gave it, yeah, it was at first, I was just thinking, like, I got to do something. I'm not just going to sit in this hospital bed and just wish that my body will come back to recovery. So, in the beginning, you know, while I was in that critical stage of pneumonia and everything, uh, I mean, I couldn't even sit up in a chair for more than 10 minutes without passing out. I was that medically destabilized. So I'd spend a lot of my time just doing that, just trying to do something. In the middle of the night, I would ask my nurse to like move my knee to my chest and straighten out my leg. And I'd be trying to send these signals to make that connection um, and, you know, move my arms and hands. And when I got to that hospital, the kind of chief neurologist of the hospital, you know, told me like, Hey, Robert, in your free time, think about doing this. It's a thing called neuroplasticity. And it's your, the idea of your, your brain and your nervous system's way of rewiring itself to your body. So three ways that you can kind of achieve recovery through a spinal cord injury. One of those is nerves just kind of wake up. They go dormant under the trauma. And then as you stimulate the system, it wakes up. Two is that these are living wires. They can regrow. It's very slow. And scar tissue blocks off a lot of that uh, regeneration, but they can regrow. And the third way, which is the way that I think much of my recovery has come from, is sort of this rewiring of the system that's still intact. So I would try to open my hand, you know, hundreds of times. And my brain would keep kind of hitting that block in my spinal cord. It's like you just snipped the wire to a light bulb. You know, it's like the switch works and the bulb works, but the wire that connects the two was not working. So as I continue to do this, the brain sort of experiments with that pathway and being that it's all interconnected, was able to kind of route around that injury and work its way back to the nerve, which can open up my hand to where those things just kind of, you know, they opened up, but it took thousands of reps just to get a flicker. And then I had to continue to build on it from there to you know, turn it into something functional. Well, I asked that. I mean, this is really fascinating to me. Um, and I asked that because I actually had a two-level cervical fusion a couple, two years ago, just over two years ago. Um, so I'm a little bit familiar with some of the stuff, not not a lot, but um, on a much smaller level, obviously. But I had a lot of nerve damage in my arm. And, um, you know, some of it came back after the surgery, but there's been a lot that that is either permanent or, like you mentioned, it's regrowing and, and there's scar tissue. And I've I've noticed that that I really, I feel sometimes like it's not that my arm is weak. It's that I have to really retrain my brain, like to know that like it can actually do what I want it to do. It's just not used to doing it anymore. So it's, it's, it's really cool to me to hear somebody else talk about this, like how you've had to like rewire, you know, your brain to your nerve endings and to your, you know, appendages and stuff. And I I think this is really cool. Yeah, I love it. Okay. I'm probably going to ask you a bunch of questions after we stop recording too, but (laughs) that's all other (laughs) can of worms. But, um, well, so at what point did you kind of finish up rehab? Like, did they kind of say, okay, we've done all you we can do for you? Or were you kind of like, I feel good, I want to move on? Or how how does that process work after a huge injury like this? You know, it was, it was kind of both. I had progressed to this point where, you know, I didn't need a harness to hold me up as I walked. You know, I could support my own body weight. And, you know, I was very independent in terms of like my upper body, my hands. I could dress myself. I could feed myself. You know, I could write and type from like an occupational therapy perspective. And, you know, the goal was always just to prepare me to a point where I could return back home and I could complete internships and go back to school and graduate. And I reached this point after almost a year of rehabilitation to where it was, I was kind of thinking, I'm ready to go home. You know, I'm ready to kind of start my life up again because I had really just put it on on hold for that entire year, not going to school and not working, just doing my rehab. You know, and they were also kind of thinking the same thing. I think it's time, you know, for you to be able to go home. So that decision was made. And, but I, you know, I still continued on the rehab. I'm 1,405 days 
into this thing now. Um, you know, and I still continue to rehab every single day, you know, anywhere from like one to three hours a day, depending on how much time I have getting on my feet, working at it. And like I said, the gains still cannot notice them day to day, but as I increase this scope, it only continues to come. The progress only continues to show. Are are you doing most of that on your own now, or do you still like go to a, a PT or something like that? Right now, it's all on my own, just with the coronavirus and all. Once once that all happened, I just I just kind of found this workout routine at my house. But you know, when I was at Cal, it was like our strength and conditioning coach that was helping helping me. And you know, there's there's a real incredible story and just a, a saint of a human being. In that, I was worried when I was going back to school. I was thinking. You know, I put in all this work for my rehabilitation and I don't want it to go away. And, you know, not only that, but I want to continue to progress. And we just didn't have the resources that were at this hospital or, you know, even at just a decent uh, rehabilitation clinic. And my rugby coach, Tom Billups, you know, he came up to me and he's like, who do I need to talk to? What do I need to be reading? What do we need to do? So that when you come here, we can hit the ground running. I mean, I didn't even have to ask him to help me out. He just immediately offered his help. And we got after it to where <laughs> my most significant gains, I mean, really have been with Coach Billups. Coach Billups has spent more time with me rehabilitating than anybody. Um, you know, the person with the least experience was was putting forth so much um, to where, you know, he wasn't just my rugby coach. No, he's, he's my coach for life. He's coached me through everything. You know, that's what that program's about. And I'm just blessed to be a part of it. Well, well, tell me more about, because I love that this rugby team just seems to be so tight and you guys are like this little family unit. Because I know when you also returned to school, like the whole team was like escorting you to all your classes and things too, right? Like, tell me, tell me about your team and your coaches and that whole bond and community you guys have. Well, you know, like I was saying with Coach Billups that, you know, he's my coach for life. You know, this is, this is my team for life. And when I returned back to Cal, you know, I was also kind of worried just about navigating the campus, you know, still using a manual wheelchair for my functional transportation. And the hills of Berkeley are just unbelievable. Um, I I don't know know if you've ever been to like San Francisco or (laughs) it's it's very much like that. So, um, so I'm thinking, you know, this might be a real challenge. Um, you know, when it's rainy and the wheels get slick and you're going downhill, oh, um, I mean, I would just be like, <laughs> watch out. So, so what we did, um, you know, talking with our head coach, uh, Jack Clark, who's been at the program for approximately 40 years, we put together this spreadsheet, kind of a live updatable spreadsheet with my schedule on there where players would go and sign up to escort me kind of to and from my classes and my workouts, wherever I needed to go, you know, giving me that help and transportation, but also just being someone to talk to, being a friend, someone who's supportive. I couldn't have graduated if it weren't for this team. And it's kind of interesting. You know, I lost all these connections, these neurological connections from my injury, and I had to find new connections. And, you know, one of that was through my friends, through my teammates, you know, going out there and supporting me. You know, these people, they're very much up there. And the reason of why I was able to graduate as a quadriplegic. Oh, man. Well, and tell me about graduate because you ended up graduating in less than four years, even with that year of rehab and figuring all this out. You were awarded the Wilma Rudolph Student Athlete Achievement Award to honor those who have overcome odds. Like, I mean, you you have done so much learning to navigate you know, campus through a wheelchair, like all of these things. And I think you even spoke, like you even gave a commencement speech, right? Like, tell me how, how, first of all, how on earth did you graduate in less than four years with taking a year off? I mean, I couldn't even do it with just (laughs) schooling. (laughs) Impressive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it actually wasn't less than four years. It was four on the dot. Um, still, (laughs) but, but yeah, no, still, you know, coming in, I was taking over more than a four full course load and studying in the Haas School of Business, which is a top three undergraduate business program in the world, you know, going to the number one public university in the world, the academic rigor was significant and still continuing at my rehabilitation. And just being a quadriplegic is a job in itself, you know, feeding myself and getting out of bed, getting in bed, showering, all these things. They take so much more time and effort. And um, it was my perspective that really fueled me because when I was in the hospital, you know, I always had somebody helping me. I always had somebody by my side. And, you know, when I went to school, there was a lot of moments that I spent by myself, you know, in my room, just kind of lost in my thoughts and stuff like that. And, 
you know, just that daily struggle, it can really take a wear on you, you know, and over thousands, thousand days doing that kind of stuff. And it was my perspective that really fueled me. You know, I would think back to those moments when I was laying on that hospital bed, fighting to breathe, and I would have given anything to be in that situation back at Cal. I would have given anything to be where I am now. I mean, truthfully, if it's anything other than my family and friends, I would have said, take it. I don't care what it is. Take it to give me what that guy has. And I was there. And I'd think about those moments, but not just my own experiences, but also the experiences of others where it was this real common activity for me to get on my phone when I was feeling down. And I didn't look up videos of puppies and rainbows. I would look up like cancer patients, people who are diagnosed with ALS, you know, veterans who come back from war, losing limbs. I mean, these people are just going through these really terrible, difficult situations. And I'm looking at them, explain how they make their lives happen every day. And I'm just like, damn, remind me not to complain about anything ever again. There's this saying that I use, and it digs me out of those tough situations. I hope that the listeners can use this saying too. And that saying is, compared to what? So I'd be like, oh man, I am so tired, but compared to what? This is a lot that I'm going through right now, but compared to what? Now, that statement is not meant to dismiss our challenges. I think that's very unhealthy when we dismiss our challenges. What it is meant to do is realize that what we go through is overcomable. It puts it down into perspective and helps us realize that there are so many positives in our lives that we can be focusing on right now. So in those moments when I was thinking, you know, this is a lot of class, this is tough, but compared to what? Or, you know, the alarm's going off at 5 a.m. and I got rehab to go to, I'm tired, but compared to what? That pushed me. That kept me going. I love that. I think I'm going to write that on my mirror to see every morning. Um, that's awesome. Yeah, I'm going to tattoo that to my forearm. <laughs> <laughs> you should. I mean, that's, that's really, I love it. Um, well, your your perspective and your mindset kind of reminds me of somebody else I talked to on our podcast in episode 12. His name is Brad Snyder. And you mentioned looking at other people with different kinds of injuries or, or diagnoses and um, kind of looking at them as motivation. And he actually, he was a Navy EOD officer and stepped on an, an IED and lost his vision as a result of that. And he had a very different reaction from his family. He said his family was so sad and upset because his life was going to be different than it ever had been. And he lost this vision and they, they were very worried for him. But he kept thinking, guys, I'm alive. Like he called it his alive day. And he was so excited that he was alive and they couldn't understand why he was so okay with what was happening because he thought he had died. So to him, this was this great gift that he was still alive. And, you know, I read somewhere where you said that if you could go back to what happened when you broke your neck, you wouldn't. And I'm curious if you could tell us why. Yeah, you know, it's it's quite the claim. And I think that the jury's still out there for a lot of people because they probably think I'm either a liar or a lunatic <laughs> when I say something like that. Because, you know, obviously this situation has brought on a lot of negativity and hardship in my life. And I have to deal with it every single moment. There is no rest from paralysis. I can't take a cheat day from paralysis. I have to deal with this every single second. But I'll tell you what's made it all worth it for me is the impact that I've been able to make on other people and the ability I now have to inspire in a way that I never had when I was just playing sports. And there's this one story that's really stuck with me uh, in particular. And in the summers when I was playing rugby at Cal, I would come back to Jesuit high school, um, you know, where I learned to play rugby and I would coach youth rugby camps. And I'd share this passion I had with these players and, you know, teach them the skills that I had learned. And so they could be good rugby players too, and, and share in this passion. And there was this one camper there who I bonded with in particular, and his name was Talon. And Talon was kind of one of the smaller guys out there, but like the kid at heart, you know, is like this Rudy type. And I remember I'd like pick him up and I'd be like bobbing in between the 10 year olds and stuff so he could, you know, go score. And like we shared this connection. And it was around the time of my injury that it was about five days after that Jesuit high school was hosting a prayer service for me to, you know, pray for my mental strength and my physical healing. And it was on that same day that my father showed a photo to me on Facebook, and it's this kid. And his skin is pale, his body is frail, and he's got this like his thins all, you know, hair and it, and it's white. And 
this kid is Talon. And Talon was fighting cancer. And it was in the caption of this post that his mom said, that talked about the connection that we shared at this camp and, you know, picking him up to go to score and things like that. And he's wearing this Jesuit rugby shirt. And she's talking about how it's his goal that when he beats this cancer, he wants to go out and be a rugby player just like me. And it was, and he wanted to be there to pray for me at this prayer service, but he couldn't because he was undergoing uh, chemotherapy. But in the end of the message, she says, Robert, stay strong and keep smiling. Your strength helps talent stay strong too. And I just broke down thinking that what I do is not about me. Now, like I said, my, my workouts take anywhere from like an hour to three hours, you know, three hours of kind of the full workouts. It consists of me walking, doing sit to stands and then ending the workout on an e-stim bike. In the beginning of it, I'm kind of cruising along. By the end of it, I am screaming for every single step. I'm giving everything I got to put one foot in front of the other. Something so simple. I do not choose to take another step for the pleasure of going from point A to point B on my feet. I do it to inspire someone else. This is the biggest commitment I have ever made in my life. When I'm tired and I don't feel like keep like I want to keep pushing forward. I think of all of these people who are being inspired by this journey and I do it for them. Now, I have a very sad update on Talon. Talon passed away. Um, it was about uh, four weeks ago, about a month ago after a roughly four year battle with cancer and Talon died a winner and Talon died a fighter. I could not wish away these experiences that I've had, these people that I've met because of what happened to me and this inspiration I'm able to give now because of what has happened to me. If I could go back and change what happened to me on May 6th of 2017, I wouldn't and I couldn't because this is it has given me now the greatest purpose that I have in my life. Oh, okay. Really trying not to cry right now. And <laughs> prayers going out to Talon's family too. Um, that's an incredible story. And I love how you guys kind of both motivated each other. I mean, look at what you did for him, but then also what in turn he's done for you. I mean, that's really, really special how people come into our lives, no matter how old or young you are or what your station is, you can really impact the people around you with simple, simple actions like that. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. I know sometimes in sports, terrible accidents just happen. Um, when I was younger in gymnastics, an elite level gymnast on our team um, did a vault at a competition and broke her neck on impact. She was <sighs> paralyzed and on life support for several years before she passed away. Um, your situation's a little bit different, though. You know, I've read some things about how the play went down, like you were saying, it was, it was some illegal moves. Um, and it, it kind of begs the question how do you feel toward the person or the people that, that kind of caused that accident? Yeah, that was a real challenge for me in the beginning of my, of my recovery. You know, at first it was kind of unclear how everything had happened. You know, it's very quick. I never, I never blamed the ref for not um, noticing these things and calling these things because, you know, it does happen fast and these malls are really dark and there's a lot going on. But it was a little bit after my injury that this photographic evidence, this videotape from the sideline started to produce itself that what happened to me was clearly illegal. It was clearly a bind around my neck, bringing me down to the turf that broke my neck. And when I was looking at pictures and videos of someone doing something illegal, wrenching me down and causing my paralysis, I wanted to be angry. I mean, I wanted to hate this person. As a rugby player, I was kind of in that mindset to where if someone hits you, you hit them back and you hit them harder. <laughs> this person just hit me as hard as I could really ever be hit. And, you know, he's never reached out to me. And, uh, you know, 1,400 and five days later, this guy has never said he's sorry. But I will tell you this. I forgive him whether he is sorry or not. I realize that the more hate I gave to this person, the more I focused on what he did to me, the more power I gave to him and the less power I could give to myself. It wasn't until I learned to forgive him that I was able to move on from that situation, to be able to keep my head up and see all these positive things that I had going on for me in my life. And I'll tell you, it was not just like snap my fingers, make a decision and I forgive him. No, because I still had this anger, this animosity within me when I thought of him and what he did to me. But regardless of how I felt, if somebody asked me, you know, what do you think? I would say, 
I forgive him. I wish him well. And even if I didn't feel it internally, I would, you know, say that externally. You know, our feelings have a lot of control over our thoughts and our actions, but our actions have a lot of control over our feelings and thoughts too. And as I continued to do this to make this conscious decision that I forgive him, that hatred went down. Now that animosity that went down to where I am now, where I mean, I don't even give this guy a thought. You know, I, I truly do wish him well in life. I truly do forgive him. But that was a really important, critical step for me in my recovery. It's something that I recommend everybody access in their life to forgive the people that they need to forgive, not truly for the purpose of um, helping the person who did them wrong, but for the purpose of helping themselves, for helping themselves move on. And you know, even if they don't have a person they need to forgive, a situation they need to forgive, because we can kind of just be mad at the universe, you know, mad at circumstance in our life. And that journey in forgiveness is the same in that situation. It's something we all have to do. Oh, that's beautiful. And I, I 1 million percent agree because if you if you don't, you just, like you said, you carry that bitterness and that hatred and it just it just becomes bigger and worse over time. But when you, like you said, it doesn't happen, you know, with the snap of your fingers overnight, like it takes time to truly forgive and become free of that, but you can become free of that. Um, that's beautiful. I have to ask you, you count everything in days. I know you said when you stood up, I think it was like, 1,220 days when you stood up out of your wheelchair. It was 1,381 days to get out of like this lower bed um, to to be independent without a wheelchair. And you just told me today it was 1,405 days since. Yet. Why do you count the days? You know, I, it's something that I just kind of like did in the beginning. You know, just like it was easy. You know, when it was like day three, <laughs> you know, like day ten and stuff like that. Uh, it wasn't that hard to to remember, and it just became like this habit. You know, and I was kind of at first, I was thinking like, man, you know, I've I've had to deal with this for thirty days. Can you believe? You know, I've spent the last month doing this, and you know, I'm approaching four years um, soon on this upcoming May six, and it's really become a source of pride for me. And I like sharing that that daily journey that I go on because at first I would just kind of post on my social media and, and whatnot of like significant accomplishments I had made. For example, like you re- referenced day 1220 when I was able to stand up out of my wheelchair and into my walker for the first time. Um, that was a tremendous accomplishment for me, but it took 1220 days of really intense work. So, you know, now in my rehabilitation, what, what I, which I do every day, you know, I keep track of that because, you know, day 1219 was just as important and just as significant as day 1220 in that point. You know, it took all those daily things. That's where like the real lesson in my recovery is, is that daily grind and like appreciating that grind and appreciating like that hardship and that struggle, like seeking out that discomfort. That's a real you know, principle that's tied into athletics, you know, working on being uncomfortable. That's something that I do. I do every day. And I like that day counter um, because as it goes up, I'm even more proud that I haven't quit after this much time. And I never will. I'm either going to, I'm either going to get out of this wheelchair one day or I'm going to die trying. There's no in between. I love it. Yeah. I, I think you are going to get out of it. I am, I am fully convinced. I have no doubt. And I am going to watch every step of the way. And I, I do love on your social media, how you show not just the big accomplishments, but sometimes you show like, Hey, a year ago, um, you know, I was at this place and look at me now, like you say, sometimes you can't see the, that daily progress, but you'll put two things side by side and you can really see the difference. And I love that. So where can people continue to follow you, be inspired and encouraged by you online? Yes. So, you know, really every major social media platform out there, I think there's probably like five Robert Paylors in the entire world. It's not really that common of a name. So um, just looking up Robert Paylor on social media, you know, is one. And um, for interest in, you know, connecting with me personally or having me speak to an organization, my website's www.robertpaylor.com. And, you know, if there's a listener out there who's really inspired by this story today, I, I encourage you, please reach out to me. Uh, you know, like I said, the reason I wouldn't change what happened to me when I broke my neck is that kind of interaction, knowing that what I'm doing is inspiring someone else. So I implore you, you know, please reach out to me. I hope that you choose to follow me and have, have this daily inspiration to feed your mental diet. Um, another one of these things that I speak on often, but that really means a lot to me to know that there's people out there who are really getting a lot out of this journey because I do it for them. I don't do it for myself. 
Uh, definitely. So robertpaylor.com, we'll make sure to link to that in the show notes and have your social handles on there as well. Robert, thank you so much for taking the time to walk us through your incredible journey and how it's not just changed your physical life, but your mindset, your faith, your outlook on life as well. There's so much for us to take away from your story. And I'm pretty sure I'll be listening to it over and over again. So thank you so much for just your time and um, yeah, just sharing everything with us. Oh my gosh, absolutely. And thank you so much for having me. This was such a joy. Such so great to meet you. And I hope everybody gets a lot out of this. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show. This allows us to keep bringing on amazing guests. And it also helps other athletes to find this show. Make sure to check out the show notes to follow us on social media and learn more about our awesome guest. To hear all of our amazing episodes, head on over to thepursuitofgold.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Pursuit of Gold is proud to be a Podigy production. That's all for now. Make sure to tune back in next week.